Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash intrepid. Over 150,000 titles to choose from. Books for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. 150,000 titles, including today's guest, Simon Sinek. So go to audibletrial.com slash intrepid and get Simon's Leaders Eat Last for free on audibletrial.com slash intrepid. All right, on with today's show. Good afternoon and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I'm your host, Todd Schnick. You know, people ask me every day why I devote so much energy, time, and passion to my podcasting. Well, frankly, my friends, it's to afford me the chance to connect with people like today's guest. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Say hello to my guest. His name is Simon Sinek. He's an author and speaker. Welcome to the show, Simon. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you for carving out a few minutes to join me. Simon, I have a feeling that most of my audience is aware of you, but I would appreciate if you uh, took a quick sec and tell them a little bit about you and your background. Um, Well, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, I, uh, you know, wake up every single morning with a single desire, which is to inspire people to do what inspires them. Um, And I have a very simple vision of the world. That vision is to create a world in which... The vast majority of us wake up every single morning inspired to go to work and come home every single day fulfilled by the work that we do. And so I do all kinds of things to help advance that idea. I teach, I speak, I write, um, I do some advisory work, anything to advance that idea. Well, we're here to talk about the new book, which is called Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. But I want to go back to that, uh, how you said that, in terms of of your mission, your purpose. Uh, I I was going to ask this later in in our conversation, but shoot, I'm going to do it now. I mean, what what is your why? I mean, you're obviously the the author of the the exceedingly popular book, Start With Why. But what is your why? I mean, you just stipulated it, but what does inspire you? Why are you... Why are, are you devoting a life to this calling of helping people understand their mission and purpose? Well, all of our whys are, 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 are set when we're sort of about 18 or 19. It's the sum total of how we were raised, the experiences we had, the lessons we learned as kids. And so my why to inspire people to do the things that inspire them comes from my background, and it's, it's who I am. And like, and like anybody, it's, we can't change who we are. We can either live in balance or out of balance. And so a few years ago, what I discovered, and I, when I discovered my why, is it gave me a filter. It gave me a, um, a standard by which to make decisions and, and choose to live my life, which has made me much, much happier and feel much more successful as I've, as I've gone through this journey. So um, we, all, we all have a why. We only have one why. And the opportunities of our careers is to live consistent with that why. Now, see, I, I don't want to challenge you because I, I feel like I've, when I got out of school, Simon, I did the usual thing. I got into a career that was a miserable career that browbeated me and it was a hard existence and it was frustrating and it was stressful. And then I, I had some life changes and was able to kind of break out and do uh, do something different. And, and I may, maybe I found my why or, or discovered it. I, is, is that common that someone can do that? I mean, I just, I'm so frustrated by the fact that most of the people I observe 
serve in the world seem just browbeaten and stuck and miserable and res- but resigned to this this life is there any hope for even for someone who's maybe lived some life and had some experiences yeah, uh, of course of course of course you know there, there's two things at play here one is our parents and our guidance counselors you know uh, more often than not what we're told as we approach graduation is get a job you know find a job get a job this is what we're told very few people are told find a job you love get a job you love and so our standard is employment our standard isn't happy employment <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's one part the other part is it is you know the there's been a certain uh trajectory that that our corporate cultures have been on for the past generation or two and I, and I go into it in some detail in this new book um, as to we have now created corporate cultures where being unhappy at work is becoming acceptable, in which we accept that work is drudgery and that's what it is. And, you know, inspiration is something you do with your hobbies or if you're lucky, you know, but it's not something we come to expect from a thing called work. And the problem is, is the more of us that are unhappy at work, uh, the more often we teach our children that work is a place you can go and it's okay to be unhappy. So it is a societal standard, quite frankly, that I'm, this is part of what I'm working to reverse. We as people, we as employees, we need to demand that our leaders provide an environment in which we want to go to work, in which we feel valuable and valued. And, and that's sort of the whole point of this, of this movement. All right. Well, let's get to this book then. Again, it's called Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Simon, there's obviously an awful lot of lessons that, that you can pull from the, the premise and the, and the theme of this book. But is, is, can you boil it down really simply to this one lesson that organizations that have inspired leadership who, who are prepared and willing to sacrifice the numbers before the people instead of what seems to be far too common and sacrificing people before the numbers? I mean, <laughs> Is that the, the simple lesson here? At the end of the yeah, 100% yes. At the end of the day, uh, we are social animals, and the success of our organizations uh, and the success of our species, indeed, uh, hinges on our ability to look after each other. Um, when we live in groups and work in groups, and we work together and we trust each other, we can face the dangers on the outside and seize the opportunities. But when we do not trust or cooperate, we're forced to expend our own time and our own energy to protect ourselves from each other. And this weakens the organization and at the end of the day makes us unhealthy. Um, we, like I said, we are naturally predisposed to trust and cooperate. The problem is, is that trust and cooperation are not instructions, they're feelings. I can't tell you, trust me, and you will. And I can't simply instruct two people to cooperate and they will. They're feelings. And the question is, how do those feelings happen? And those feelings happen when we feel that those around us, especially our leaders, are the ones willing to take the risk to go first to put their interests aside for us. And in return, we return them, we, we repay them with loyalty, hard work, a desire, and, an, and, and a feeling of inspiration to advance their, advance their vision and look after each other along the way. It's a natural human reaction. Well, how did we get into this hole? I mean, how did we allow our culture, how did we allow it to be okay to be miserable at work? And I'm just, as we record this, Simon, uh, we just heard the news about Apple. They just put out their fourth quarter numbers, and <laughs> they, they sold over 50 million phones, and they did beat the official market expectations. But overall, it was seen as a disappointment, and the stock is tanked. I mean, it's, is it any wonder that, that organizations are willing to sacrifice people before the numbers? I mean, I, how did, how did it, this happen? And, and, as, and as you just said, we're not, we're not designed to operate that way. How did we get here? 
we're victims of our own success. You know, when, when a company only wins, 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 the standards become un, unsustainable and unrealistic. You know, as you said, they beat all the projections, but everybody's still disappointed. You know, it's like IBM. IBM, their CEO, uh, created this five-minute video that was sent internally berating the sales team for letting the, the numbers go down. This, by the way, they had missed their numbers one quarter after something like tens and tens of quarters, you know, without a single problem. The problem is, is the standards are unrealistic. That's like saying if you don't get straight A's in every single class you go to, then I'm disowning you as my child. You know, um, in other words, the, the standard is unrealistic. And what, ended up, what ends up happening, it puts so much pressure that it pushes us to cheat. It doesn't push us to cooperate. But when we say that we're playing a long journey here and what we want is for you to grow up and be successful and if you get good grades, you'll do well and if you have a bad grade, we say, what happened? We don't say, you're, you, there's something wrong with you. We don't penalize you. The standards are just so ridiculous and like I said, we're victims of our own success. We're becoming greedier and greedier, more selfish and more selfish and demanding that others uphold ridiculous standards so that we can continue to profit from their success. The whole thing is the whole thing is is unfortunately counterproductive to our own biology. Well, we're going to get into that biology in a second. And and Simon, let me just say, I'm grateful to you for your efforts and your devotion to changing this uh, this paradigm. But are you, are you optimistic that we can actually get around this and, and change? I mean, is it is it really possible? I mean, I, as a student of history, I look back and I say, how in the heck? Did the Roman Empire, as great as it was, fall apart? And you begin to see, well, I guess I can understand now how that kind of thing can happen in history. I mean, do you, do you have hope that, that we can turn the corner on this and, and build a culture where we can, we can trust one another? Absolutely. And it's not like there's no trust. I mean, there are plenty of organizations that serve as great examples where, where trust thrives. The United States Marine Corps, a company called Barry Waymiller in St. Louis, you know, uh, companies like Zappos, you know, there, there are really good companies out there where people like going to work and trust each other and look after each other. In other words, I can't be accused of being a crazy idealist if, if these examples exist in reality. What we need is for those examples to, to outnumber the bad examples. And the problem is right now is we have an uncomfortably high number of bad examples. So, yes, of course I remain optimistic. What's more is it's when we talk about this vision, when we talk about this vision of creating a world in which the vast majority of us wake up every day, inspired to go to work, feel safe when we're there and come home fulfilled at the end of the day, that's something we desire. Most people want that. And so when we want that vision, we will work tirelessly to build it ourselves. That's how anything good happens in the world, which is we work together to build the things we want. And so, yeah, I believe I am bullish. I believe that we can get back to a time in which companies prioritize the care of people before the, they prioritize the care of a number or, uh, uh, or some abstract concept. You know, and Simon, what also motivates me in the morning is that that battle, that journey, that fight, that that belief in the in the fact that we can turn around, frankly, is a big part of 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 your why, too. Right. I mean, striving for this ideal, striving for what's really possible. What we have seen work in, in many cases. Uh, frankly, excites me to get up every day and fight for that. I'm, I'm sure it does as well with you. Your initial book, uh, the, the bestseller, Start With Why, by the way, thank you for, for that great work. Uh, it's funny to me. It makes me smile how many times a day I seem to hear people reference uh, that, that book and its message. 
was obviously about the why we do what we do. Is this next book, Leaders Eat Last, is, is that the, the next step? Is that the what and the how? It, not, not, not as prescriptively as, as I think uh, uh, some people would expect. You know, I, I'm not into writing sort of serial books, as it were. You know, this is, this is not about my franchise, right? Um, w- these are semi-autobiographical uh, books. Uh, my first book was born out of my own loss of my own passion. And it was that search to try and regain my passion when I discovered this pattern that I call the golden circle with this missing piece called the why that became my obsession and it, and it, it saved my life. And I shared it with my friends and they started making crazy life changes and they would invite me to share it with their friends. And so eventually I had the opportunity to write a book about this, this idea. And it's had an impact in people's lives, which is so humbling and flattering for the very simple reason is it had an impact in my life. And then the journey continued. And, um, and I started to struggle with issues of trust of trust. You know, I started to sort of meet, meet many more people and I didn't know who to trust. And I had a few experiences where I, where people said the right things to me and I, I thought they were my friends. And then I, it turned out that, you know, when I wouldn't do a business deal with them or something, all of a sudden they stopped calling me and I realized I didn't know who to trust anymore. And I started spending a lot of time with folks in the military and they seemed to enjoy levels of trust that I really envied. And in extreme examples, some of them would risk their lives for each other. We don't even like to give a credit. You know? <laughs> um, and so my initial conclusion was they're just better people and I wanted to spend as much time around them as possible and that they were naturally drawn to the military because of the issues of, you know, because of the elements of service. But the more I started to learn and try to understand how they were so great, the more I started to learn it was about the environment and that every single one of us has the capacity to work in an environment where the people around us would risk themselves or risk their comforts or put their numbers aside to make sure that we were okay, that we all have that ability and that is a, it, is, it is a natural human thing. And so the journey continued where I went out to understand you know, what trust means, what cooperation means and how we form it and how we get it and how we build environments in which trust and cooperation are normal. Don't forget things like politics, silos, cynicism, uh, paranoia, mistrust, self-interest are all are all the um, symptoms of 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 a bad environment. Um, when we're in a good environment, trust, cooperation are the are the norm. And so this this book picks up where my journey continues, um, trying to understand you know how how I can feel safe amongst the people I work with, how I can feel safe and I can feel trusted and trusting of the people I get to know. Um, and, and it probably, you know, it, 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 is it conclusive? You know, it probably also stops at a point in the journey and, and who knows what will come next. Well, I understand that environment has a big impact, uh, but as you said earlier in the in the conversation, biology has a real impact on this as well. I mean, you've you've said uh, that our stressful jobs are literally killing us. So, yes. uh, you, I watched a presentation that you made. I think it was to ninety nine U, and it was just mind blowing as you were going through some very compelling physiological factors that have a real impact in how we exist and how we spend our day if, if you if i could uh, ask you to just touch on some of those those key themes there sure i mean obviously the book goes into much more depth as does that 99% uh, that 99u talk um uh but in a nutshell um you know all of the good feelings we have you know happiness joy friendship excitement 
achievement, pride, all of these great things, um, they are produced by chemicals inside our bodies, um, chemicals that are working as incentives uh, to direct our behavior, to get us to repeat behaviors in our best interest. That's why it feels good, right? So like eating feels good, so we'll do it more. We don't eat intellectually, ah, must survive. We eat because we enjoy it, right? We get hungry, there's a, there's a reaction to it. Um, we go looking for food because we enjoy it, not just because we think about it intellectually. Um, we look after each other because it feels good to do nice things for nice people, you know? Um, we, we look, we, we're good parents because it feels good to be a good parent. It feels good. It feel, makes us feel proud to see our children grow up and accomplish something. All of these are incentives inside of us to, to get us to look after each other. But there's another chemical called cortisol. And cortisol is the feeling of stress and anxiety. It is designed to keep us alive. It is an early warning alarm system. And when we feel stress or, or anxious, um, we get tense. Our hearts sometimes can race. Uh, our muscles tensen up, our, our, our senses become heightened, and we become paranoid because stress is supposed to keep us alive. And it's not supposed to be in our systems all the time. It's supposed to be occasional when we face danger. And when we work in unhealthy environments, when we work in bad corporate cultures and stress is the norm and we never really feel entirely safe, what ends up happening is with all that cortisol in our, in our bodies, it actually ends up compromising our immune systems. You know, the United States has some of the best medical systems in the world, some of the best hospitals in the world, some of the best doctors in the world, some of the best medical training in the world, some of the best medicines in the world. And yet some cancers are on the rise, diabetes is on the rise, heart disease is on the rise. It's not partially hydrogenated oils. It's that the actual work environments, it's the places we work, our jobs are actually killing us. The environments in which we're working do not work to our biolog biological best. And it's killing us along the way. Yeah, uh, you can see why. The, <laughs> I urge uh, my audience here to listen to that 99U presentation because uh, it does an amazing job of walking through that in a lot more detail. And, and obviously the book is into it as well. I mean, it's just mind-blowing kind of stuff. Simon, let me ask you this, this question. Who's ultimately responsible for leading this change? I mean, is it, is it the leadership of an organization or, or a society or a culture? Or does, does an individual who's maybe resides within a large organization that's stressful and, and operated the way that, that, that is the wrong way, but they read your book and they, they get a new realization about what's possible and, and have new insights and can make more informed decisions? Uh, or, or does it have to be some sort of a combination of the two, that, that the two have to marry before we can really begin to see widespread change in building cultures that, that don't kill us, if you will? Um, you know, the worst thing we can do is play the victims. The, the leadership can't blame their people and the people can't blame their leaders. We are all responsible for our, for our, own, for our own success and our own happiness. Um, to be at the top of an organization does not make you a leader. It simply makes you an authority. And being at the bottom of an organization doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity to lead. We all have the capacity to lead. Leadership is a choice. It is the choice to look after the person to the left of us and the choice to look after the person to the right of us. That is what it means to lead. It is the anthropological definition to put the benefit of others, to put the well-being of others before ourselves, to work hard to see that others may succeed. That is what a leader does. And the reason we call them leaders is because they often take the risk to go first. Where others might hide from the danger, the leader might stand up and confront the danger to protect those around them. And so it will be more efficient if the people with the authority were to act like better leaders. 
But every single one of us can come to work and make the choice to look after the person we work with to the left of us and to the right of us. And that if they're struggling, not for us to ask them, do you want help, but just to help them. When we get a cup of coffee for ourselves, to get one for them. If, if, some, if, if our bosses come down unfairly hard on them, for us to stand up for them. This is our choice. This is our choice. And the amazing thing is, is when we choose to lead, when we choose to put the safety, the comfort, the success of those around us, sometimes before our own, the responses, they will put their safety, comfort, and success aside for us. That is the amazing thing. What makes great families is not just great parents. It's great parents and great kids. And it's the kids looking out for each other and for their parents, and it's the parents looking out for their kids and each other that makes for great family. And, it, and if we don't all work together, it doesn't work. But it's the leader. We call them the leader because they go first. They are willing to put themselves at risk because it's the right thing to do. And the response is, we all become leaders. Simon, uh, so how do you start? I, I, as I see it, there are three types of leaders. There's, there's the right kind of leader, as, as you're defining here. There is the opposite, the bad leader who, who is not caring about uh, the organization and is putting numbers first. And then there's the leader who is, maybe leans that way just because that's what society dictated and that was what was expected. But then learns what's possible and and hears you speak and says, okay, I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to begin to look out for the person to my right and to my left. Can you offer a couple of quick pieces of advice to help them change their mindset to begin that path towards towards uh, being the right kind of leader? I So first of all, you are a leader or you are not a leader. And being one of those bad leaders, you know, disqualifies you from being a leader. You may be an authority, but you're certainly no leader. And so for the person who decides they want to be a leader, the most important thing they can do is try not to do it alone. We are not made to do things by ourselves, and we're, it's a very lonely experience to try and do something alone. And so the greatest leaders have a, have a sense of, of, of safety themselves. They either have a partner or there's a couple of people that they trust who, if they were to stick their necks out and take a risk, they know that their friends or their family or their comrades or their colleagues would be there for them. And so it doesn't have to start off with a large group. It can be one person, one person who says, I got your back. And that's what gives the leader the confidence to be the leader, that they too know that there's someone there. In other words, they were willing to tell somebody, I think I'm going to do this. I think this is the right thing to do. Can I count on you? And the other person says, don't worry, I got your back. And so before anybody chooses to be a leader, I would make sure you know who's got your back. Um, it is, it is, it is much more, uh, it'll, it's much more likely to be successful. Um, if you, if you have somebody in your corner and the other simple reason is, is because it can be lonely. And when you're, when you're pushing against the machine and you're raging against the machine and you're swimming upstream, just to know that there's someone there to offer emotional support will inspire you to keep going and push harder. All right. Outstanding. Well, Simon, uh, we're about out of time. Before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you, learn about your work, and most importantly, get their hands on this new book, Leaders Eat Last? Um, the Leaders Eat Last is available at fine bookstores and some not so fine ones as well. <laughs> um, wherever you like to buy books, it's available. Um, I'm on all the required social media. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Simon Sinek, and uh, on Facebook. Um, and I'm very active on Twitter, offering uh, 140 characters of inspiration whenever I think of them. Uh, um, so all the normal stuff. 
All right, Simon Sinek, author and speaker and author of the new book, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Simon, thank you so much again for stopping by and joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Todd. All right. Well, that wraps this episode. On behalf of my guest, Simon Sinek, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Radio. What you want? What you want? You've been listening to Intrepid Radio, hosted by me, Todd Schnick. You can find the show at intrepidradioshow.com. If you enjoyed the broadcast, kindly leave a rating and review on iTunes. Until next time, stay bold, and I'll see you soon on the Intrepid Radio Show. Intrepid Radio.